It's Monday, May 31st. It is Memorial Day. This is LA Podcast. I am Scott Frazier here with Hayes Davenport, Alyssa Walker, and Matt Tinoco back with us again this week. How are all of you doing? Our second in-person record. So weird. This is In a the row. first real one because oh, yeah. I'm here. Hayes came back. Because you declined to do the last <laughs> Hayes was like, try I, it out, see how it that's goes. That's not what happened. Here, here, the, 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 the reality is much more upsetting, which is I said that I was taking the week off and then everyone decided to mm. have an in-person record. <laughs> right. after I'd already scheduled you a You should think stuff. about yeah. why that happened. That is kind of true. Yes. I, but I did offer it and you... After the fact. And yes. you were very, way too late. very busy. <laughs> Uh, we are actually doing this. It feels good. To we're be starting back. from scratch sonically, as you can hear. We're we're back to 2018. It is. It's like being in the the hardwood floored room yes. on Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> all over again, and taking several steps backwards. And and that's just how it's going to be. Um, it's just like the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> we have, we're rebuilding. We good view from here, though. I bet this is better than. Your Hollywood Boulevard view? I don't think that room had windows. Did it have a window? It did have really tiny little windows that looked out on an Um, alley. It was on the back. As we say this, like a LAPD helicopter like swoops by the 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 gray May sky. Well that's just atmosphere. That's Valley Bureau. Chandler Chandler wishes that he had those helicopters <laughs> flying by while he was riding. Uh, so we've got a big show. I think just first we want to tip for our Sepulveda Pass holders that we've got a new uh, a new episode of TMZ coming out. The movie is <laughs> Cradle to the Grave. The tagline is Born to the Life, True to the Code. Bad to the bone. It is uh, the DMX Jet Li buddy action thriller uh, that you. It's a DMX Jet Li. Oh action God! Thriller. Well, they have good chemistry, so I'm not surprised that they yeah. they came back. But it's for, the only one that was set in LA. For more, uh, that expect that later this week. Before we get into the uh, meat of this episode, too, does anyone have LA stories that they would like to? Share with us. You can start because Alyssa's is a, is a follow up on yours. I know. Okay. Uh, well, mine is uh, mine is pretty simple. I as, as I've been mentioning the past couple of weeks, I have been in the process of of moving. There's um, a fair amount of things at my old apartment that I just didn't want to bring with me to the new place. So I've been having uh, I've been having friends come over to my old apartment to pick up things that they want that I no longer have space for uh, or just don't want to move. And at the same time, I've been looking for an e-bike. Now I finally have space, uh, you know, like just to store a bike and I want to, I want to see if I can make this work. So people have been coming over, letting me, I've been testing out different types of of e-bike and God, I just love them so much. They're so much fun to just like ride around. There's like, uh, you know, like the the best feeling is when you just like push down on the pedal a little bit and you just like shoot forward, <laughs> like you're, past the cars when they're so you're like, oh, you thought that I was going to be slow. That was it's just it's so easy and it just feels so uh, so fun. And I'm I'm really looking forward to to buying one. I haven't had a bike in like six or so years since I got. Uh, hit by a car and then became rapid, do it. rapidly became too afraid to to ride around anywhere. But, but I, an e-bike gives you confidence. That's what's so. I mean, yeah, people, psychologically, I recommend it. Yeah, for people who have yeah. had things that happen to them, it's really true. Yeah, you feel like you're not um, 
it, being closer to the to the speed of of cars on the road is is definitely helpful. So that's me. I'm uh, I'm on the market for for an electric bike, and then uh, and then I'm just going to be zooming around town. Yeah, you live pretty close now to the metro bike hubs. You're you're if more you, you were on here before, if, but that's what I was saying. I was going to say yeah, like there there are more electric bikes now, but you can't always guarantee that you will get an electric bike. I'm, I thought by now, maybe over the next year, I thought they'd be switching them all to electric yeah. personally. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I, it just, a lot of other cities are doing that and there's no more like jump bikes. I think they like, yeah, threw, they're gone. They threw them in like a landfill, but then someone rescued them and set up their own bike share system in like another state or something. Um, but my recommendation to you and everyone should just send their e-bike ideas to Scott if you Please. have one that you like. Um, but you were saying, I don't know if it was in person or if I was on the show, but that you didn't write off enough, uh, on your taxes to <laughs> yes. you, now you're that you're an independent contractor. If you bought the e-bike, you can write it off like a car uh-huh. That's and true. so, and yeah. all your mileage and everything, and you could have a thing to track it. So it'd be just the same as a vehicle, a real vehicle. If you were driving in a car, bought a car for your business, getting around town. Yeah. And... There is a federal bill announced that would do an e-bikes tax credit, same with like an EV tax credit um, that looks like it will pass as part of the infrastructure. Well, if it's not completely sabotaged by the Senate Republicans who don't like. I'm going to guess that Senate Republicans do not Congress. view uh, e-bikes as, as vital infrastructure. Only F-150s, <laughs> only electric F-150s are infrastructure. But, they they um, might come out with like a coal-powered F-150. Yeah, oh, that, yeah, they would, they would vote for that. But those are my two ideas. And California is possibly going to um, have another type of program where it would incentivize, like you basically would pay for an e-bike, but it might not, you know, it might be like income, income restricted, but all, all things to look forward to. But that's my plan for you. Thank you. <laughs> I want an e-bike. Well, I've, you can do the same thing. I think I will. Well, no, because <laughs> I, I've, as, as the pandemic has ended, I've been returning to a regular driving habit around central Los Angeles and it's obviously miserable. Yeah. Um, and with transit being, if, I mean, it appears to be half of what it was. I know the service hours are different, but we've still got lower service with now more cars on the street. So queue waiting for the bus or whatever for more time. And I mean, I just, I took a little drive a couple of days ago, actually over to Alyssa's house. And it was just, it, it's a distance of like, what, three miles. And it took me 25 minutes to do in the car. And I was like, I don't even have an e-bike right now, but that's something that I could do in 15 minutes flat on just my, mm-hmm. my big wheeled bicycle that I've enjoyed using for the past year and a half now. And I don't know, it's just lots of complaints, but also just like, come on, we can do better than this. Now that we've returned to massive traffic in central LA, it's just like more annoying than ever. Well, Not even annoying, but like- The city could offer, you know, a rebate or you mm-hmm. know, a tax incentive or something like that. There's a lot of things that the city could actually do. Doesn't, or did the city do that for, or the, I think different counties in California have done that for electric vehicles. They do it through vehicles. like air quality okay, yeah, stuff, yeah. but the city itself could do it and the, the county could, you know, well, there are all sorts of options. You know. plan? You know, oh, <laughs> I've heard of that. Uh, Hayes, LA story? I have a little one. I've talked in the past about uh, helping uh, people who are homeless from encampments get uh, in, to get their stuff into storage as I think a big consequence of the pandemic is as the footprint of encampments has grown, a lot of that has been people accumulating a lot more stuff 
uh, with relaxed sweep policy and stuff like that and uh, and now need a place to put it as a lot of those uh, policies return. Uh, and for the most part, it has been really amazing with you know people being to, able to like access their things freely and just like it gives people you get kind of anchored to a certain spot on the sidewalk when you have that much stuff. And if that location becomes untenable for a million different reasons, it's like a huge issue for you to mm-hmm. get the stuff around. So it's been great. This week had the first experience with someone losing their unit because of on on-site confrontation with a significant other, which was, it was, and for the uh, people that run the storage unit, it was totally valid for them to say, this is not, yeah. these people, like, we cannot have this on our property. So these people can't have this unit anymore. So now it's taking the stuff out, figuring out like what to do with it now, but just kind of like hitting the edge of uh, bringing uh, like, in, like people who are living in encampments, interacting with businesses, with private residences and like like institutions like that. It happens with, public shelters and stuff like that too where you know like these butt up against each other especially with people like these people that run a storage unit that didn't really sign up for this kind of Mm -hmm. thing and we have to figure out a way to negotiate these relationships and it's just it's tough i like i like the answer has to be uh like some kind of publicly provided option that has a wider tolerance for things and you know the people that are using these facilities have whether like all manner of trauma and suffering from uh, like mental health issues in a lot of cases there's addiction stuff like all kinds of stuff that you have to be like reckoning with that the private sector is just not as willing to do because they don't have to uh and figuring out those edges right now is just it's very complicated yeah, I mean, I, I I think that from my perspective, having been with you to to one of these storage places, it's, it's you just you just can't get away from um, this notion that we need a lot more people who are actually employed and have experience working with people who have difficulty fitting into those sort of normal basic um, interactions that. They just they need help too, you know, mm-hmm. and the, and it's just it's a requirement right. that we actually have the the people with the latitude to help them. But that's a lift. That's a that's, it's a lift. Yeah, that's sure. going to be a big effort. Okay, uh, so we do have a lot to get through today. We want to start with uh, some news about your mayor for the moment. Your mayor for the moment. My mayor. I mean, possibly by the time this comes out, no longer your mayor. Let's start with a clip. I love this yes, is our favorite clip of this week. This was from Alyssa. Do you want to set like you uh, pulled this well, clip? Do you want to uh, set the we'll, location for us? Yeah, we'll talk more about this meeting, the Metro Board meeting, which was six and a half hours of fun is the only way I can describe it. Um, at the very beginning of the meeting, like about I'd say 30 or 40 minutes in, they did all the public comment at the beginning. So it was literally like hours of public comment at the beginning of the meeting. So that's going, and Garcetti is the board chair, so he is being very attentive and listening to every public comment and thanking people and next caller, Um, but then all of a sudden this NBC News notification pops up that says, confirmed, he has been offered the job as ambassador to India, and then the 
facilitator for the Metro board meeting kind of takes over and you can see everybody on screen looking down at their phones. Some people are talking to people oh off God. camera, like a very, a, a, a market change occurs. And as we finish up public comment, uh, we have a little bit of interaction with the board members. And what you're going to hear is uh, the, all of a sudden the mayor's internet gets really bad, which I also yes. question. And uh, this is what happens. It's primarily a conversation between Mayor Garcetti and Janice Hahn, county supervisor. And uh, Era Najarian, who is the, uh, another board member. I understand my internet connection is a little choppy, but hopefully you can hear me and it's a yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, the consent candle. The consent calendar passes. Where are you broadcasting from, Mr. Mayor? Yeah, I was going to ask that too, but I don't, you know. We all want to know. It's right here at City Hall. Right. Mm-hmm. Namaste. <laughs> so good. He's like right here at City Hall, and then all of a sudden he like freezes and then he disappears from the chat completely. <laughs> the clip is really worth watching just for the shit eating grins on everyone else's face. Aaron Najarian opens the floodgates, but with his. Oh, yeah, his smile is his priceless. Grin yeah. is trying to stretch off his face. This oh is like, where are you calling, bro? Yeah. Truly incredible. I, po- I posted it, like, I tweeted, like, the, the words of what happened. Everybody's like, no way, I don't believe you. And then I posted the video, and, like, nobody shared it. And I was like, okay, this is the proof that you were asking for. Come on, people. So uh, so the, the context for this is that we had, as Alyssa said, in the course of the month of May, a lot of rumors that Mayor Garcetti was going to be nominated by President mm-hmm. Biden to go to New Delhi to be the new U.S. ambassador uh, to the country of India, world's largest democracy. Uh, that really heated up on Thursday during the Marathon Metro board meeting that we're going to talk about later in this show. Um, and we now, uh, I think the, the the publicly reported uh, confirmation from Axios and and the Associated Press has it that any day now Biden is going to announce that this pick is set, along with about a dozen other uh, ambassadorial impo- appointments. If he actually accepts that and is uh, and is confirmed by the Senate, he Mayor Garcetti will become the first sitting mayor not to finish his term since the 1930s, when Mayor Shaw was the uh, the mayor and was recalled amid scandal. This obviously is nothing new. Garcetti has been part of uh, many rumors about departure for higher or just different office for a long time now. Uh, and as recently as January, of course, he said that he had no interest in leaving Los Angeles during a time of crisis. So crisis I mean, it's over. Cri- that that is that is the first question: is is the crisis over? Why why this job and why now? It, I I think we've talked ad nauseum about the fact that Garcetti very likely will leave uh, if these reports are are correct, and assuming that they are. Why send Garcetti to India and why why does he feel like this is the appropriate moment to go? Why send him? I think because he was co-chair of the campaign. He was he's very loyal to Biden all the way through. These are often rewards for loyalty. Rahm Emanuel, who was also considered for the cabinet, uh, is being sent to Japan. Like it's kind of the consolation prize for a lot of these things. For Garcetti, I think he's always wanted 
like foreign policy is something that he just kind of always wanted to have a, a hand in. He loves trade delegations when it comes to like L.A. working with uh, in particular like large nations close to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, India is, I think, one of the more important ambassadorships, maybe the most important for the next couple decades in terms of what the, the Biden administration is thinking about in terms of China and, and and Russia and like really establishing India as a as a trade partner and military ally and whatever else. Uh, so I think that, you know, Garcetti feels like he's going to be at the heart of it. And he's also there's not much more for him to do here. I mean, like, I don't think he's that important a figure. I mean, like there would there if if he were a different mayor, I'm reacting to Alyssa's face, who's like. <laughs> There is a lot more for him to do, but what, like, what's his power in LA now? I just don't think he has any that like, there's nothing that any elected official would go to him for necessarily. He has no like real influence. Isn't that, isn't part of that though, just that people view him as checked out? Like, yeah, no, absolutely. Like it's the consequence of having done this, but I don't think there's any turning it around now. So he might as well go. It's also sort of just to hide him, as I feel like the Biden administration is, acknowledges that his reputation in at least Southern California is pretty universally toxic. And it's like, okay, well, we can send him away and maybe people forget about him before we give him, I mean, in whatever happens in the future, it's, well, maybe there's a position for him down the line in like, maybe not this administration, but a potential future Democratic nomination or, or not nomination, but administration. But I don't know. That's just, it's like, it's putting him far away because he's pretty universally loathed here. At yeah. Least. I mean, to that point, we had uh, the Block Garcetti protests throughout the winter, basically trying to prevent uh, trying to prevent Garcetti from getting a spot in the cabinet. Now, Garcetti played down the impact that that would have had and said that it was his decision not to go. We kind of have to revisit this because it seems entirely possible now that maybe Garcetti was telling the truth and. Uh, said or maybe there was a conversation in which he said the cabinet nomination process will be a total disaster for Biden and myself and I would I would like this other sort of consolation prize India seems to me like something he would pick for all the reasons that Hayes uh, for all the reasons that Hayes listed so I, I do still think that that's something that he would have had a hand in selecting for himself. And it seems pretty clear that he does just want out now. But looking at those of us who are still going to be living in Los Angeles for, uh, for the duration, what happens to the city government when the mayor departs? Do we have a sense of what is going to happen next? Well, it's so complicated now because... How many sitting council members are running or saying that they're going to run for mayor? Well, we have Joe Buscaino, who's already in the race. We have Nuri Martinez, who is heavily rumored to be looking at a, a mayoral run. And, um, you know, Mark Ridley Thomas and Kevin DeLeon were two new members of, of city council who were eyed as specifically running for their seats in order to uh, in order to position themselves to run for mayor in 2022. And so, Coretz is out because he's running for controller. I mean, not out, but he's, he's checked he's out. Ter- in a way. He's, he's termed out. <laughs> he's termed out and checked out. As a out. city council member and he's running for city controller, presumably is out of, of contention. So you have four, you know, nearly a third of, uh, of the members of city council who are either running or considering a run 
what uh, what hap- what is the mechanism for mayoral functions being filled for the next eighteen months, assuming Garcetti leaves? Well, after Garcetti leaves, in particular, if he were to leave very suddenly, like in the case of a death or illness or whatever, uh, the city council president becomes acting mayor. And so that would be Nuri Martinez. Would be and she is mayor. when he goes out of town, too, by the way. Yes. So even if he had to make a, um, you know, fact-finding right. trip to D.C. to present a four-minute infrastructure bill. And so Nuri is uh, Nuri is the acting mayor, but Joe Buscaino is uh, the council president pro tem, so he becomes acting council president. You have this situation, um, interesting in, in at least my opinion, where these uh, now political rivals who have, I think, been reasonably close throughout their, their tenure uh, are going to be lined up on probably the off- opposite side of things. Assuming there's a longer uh, absence or the mayor's just vacated his role, then we either have a special election or the nomination of a what they would call like a caretaker mayor, right? And, and you could have both. Like even in the case of a special election, uh, the city council would get to pick an interim mayor for and, a certain time, exactly, until the new mayor takes over. And because of all of these council members running for mayor, or like or thinking about it. They would not accept a situation where someone like Nuri Martinez, who is seriously considering running, would be allowed to be interim mayor for that amount of time. We've talked about this, but the same thing happened in San Francisco. Mayor Ed Lee died. London Breed took over as acting mayor, but she was also widely known to be running for mayor. So her political opponent said, no, this cannot happen. Mark Farrell, member of the Board of Supervisors, was seen as kind of the consensus, like, okay pick, like steady hand on the wheel, and he promised that he wouldn't run. So he was mayor for five months or something like that and then was just out of uh, his job forever. Like, he he had to leave his post on the Board of Supervisors to become interim mayor, uh, and then London Breed ended up winning the election anyway. So who who has that... Uh, sort of neutrality currently like who could actually get there's been a lot of discussion about who could take over this position for the next 18 months I don't know I don't know that I see anybody that really makes a ton of sense but you I think have some thoughts yeah I mean I there was a list in LA magazine by John Rigardi of some potential picks uh, one of them was Antonio Villaraigosa and <laughs> He was like, he, he would want to do it to get back in the spotlight. It was like, yeah, no shit. Like, there's no question that he would take the job, but who would give it to him? Absolutely nobody. Isn't he also ineligible? Because yeah, he was mayor he's already. already mayor. That list also included Jerry Brown. It was Jerry Brown. <laughs> yeah. Not exactly, I think. There were some, and like Ana Guerrero is uh, Garcetti's chief of staff. I don't think anyone feels necessarily the loyalty to Garcetti's people on the city council to, to make that happen. Right. Uh, there's Wendy Gruel on the list, who I have heard is Garcetti's choice right. uh, wow. to fill that role. So symbolic. Former city council member who Garcetti defeated yeah. in, his, in his first mayoral election. Notably, that I mean, doing that would also sap a little bit of um, you know the the one of the what one imagines would be a primary talking point for Nuri Martinez as she's running for mm-hmm. mayor that she would be the first female mayor of the city of yes. Los Angeles. Yeah. So this is kind of like you know where you have these sort of uh, narratives splitting, um, and that I think could lead to some different camps forming in terms of who. Uh, who actually has the uh, uh, ability to get a majority vote to be nominated or to be put in the mayoral seat? 
But who I actually think it will be is Paul Krikorian. Uh, he is a guy that it said in the, he was on the LA magazine list and said that he has not considered a run for mayor at all. That's not true. He has kind of made like hand waved gestures that like maybe he's going to go for this, but I think he can, he is termed out in 2024. He just got reelected to his final term. And I think this is like the perfect for him sweet spot of like being able to guide the city. He is considered one of like the, like the steadier hands. He's run the budget committee for a while. He's like, he has that reputation in city hall as like a sensible guy or whatever. Uh, and I think the city council just tends to like elevate their their own, uh, and he he strikes me as as the person who could get what will ultimately be a a unanimous vote for this stuff. Like they, the, this is not going to end up, I think, in a like I don't think any of the people that want to run for mayor want this to be broken up into like a bunch of different coalitions or whatever, and uh, just like a lot of infighting. And so they'll accept Krikorian as the one who nobody loves, but everyone is okay with. Cue a council district two special. Exactly. If if Krikorian gets picked as interim mayor, that would be a special. I'm guessing they'll line it up for 2022. Uh, just it would be on the same ballot as everything else, and they would appoint uh, an interim council member for council district two or in the case of council district seven a few years ago they just left it empty oh, right. after oh, Felipe right. Fuentes well, was, left it was, in it the was dead Weston was going to do it himself yes he he said, I'll just, both. I know a bunch it. of people in district seven so. <laughs> <laughs> and her Weston is someone else that was on that list of a person who could be appointed yes. mayor I guess uh speaking of let's let's have more elections why why stop <laughs> why stop here <laughs> The recall of District Attorney George Gascon has been approved for signature gathering. I've seen all these headlines that are like it's underway or whatever, and it's like sort of underway. And it's like a huge milestone, but it's like kind of a medium milestone. Uh, basically, the, the recall campaign got their petition approved to begin gathering signatures. But this is the hardest part of the process by far. I think it's even harder than actually winning the, the recall election once you get on the ballot. They have to get 10% of LA County's registered voters, which now is a much bigger number uh, since, since it lines up with the uh, federal election cycle. They have to get 580,000 signatures in five months. This is a, that will take so much money. That's a ton of people. Yeah, and that's uh, without the benefit of probably being able to do a uh, a large scale door knocking canvassing operation at this point still. Sure. And the reason people are like, well, they did it for Newsom, and that was obviously a lot more signatures that they had to get, but they had extra time because of COVID. That's right. They got an extension. Yeah. And then this is on the normal cycle. Yeah. And yeah. they also had Newsom helping them out in, in also, myriad uh, ways. <laughs> every, basically every government in uh in California gets to within within certain boundaries set their own uh, set their own rules for how recalls proceed, and mm -hmm. the state actually has much more lenient processes for uh, for recalls to qualify than certainly than the city of Los Angeles, and I assume than the county as well. So uh, yes, it's a very high bar to clear, and it's not it's not immediately clear to me that just because you you were able to qualify to begin the petition process. That, um, that that means that you have any shot of getting this done within the required time. 
And on one of their first days of doing this, they decided to set up their signature gathering operation outside of George Gascon's house in Long Beach, which I think kind of signals like how exactly what this kind of effort is about, which is just about, yeah, exactly. Like owning uh, their opponents or whatever. And like it, it did make the news and it's a way to like let people know that this signature, signature gathering is happening. So it's like smart in that sense, I guess but not in the sense of actually getting people to sign a paper. Gascon's like uh, his wife or whatever is going (laughs) to sign this. Uh, Notably, and we want to talk about this, one of the people who showed up to the recall campaign's launch rally outside the the Hall of Justice downtown this week was the sheriff of L.A. County, Alex Villanueva. He was not in uniform. He was in street clothes. Afterwards, he went inside, changed into his uniform, and came outside to do uh, a press conference about something else. And not just in street clothes, in like a dirty-looking gray polo shirt and khakis. Yeah. (laughs) That's who he is when he's off the clock. It was like everybody has like suits on, and he's just like, oh, I literally just, you know, finished like weed whacking my yard and came over here. (laughs) He didn't building uh, his helipad. He's doing it himself. <laughs> you got to keep it clean. I get it. He did not speak at the rally, uh, but he has been giving a lot of quotes in public, kind of feeding the the fuel of these recall campaigns. As the person who probably more deserving, a more, a more likely recall candidate than any recent elected official yep. in L.A., but somehow didn't even really get one started against him. Uh, but he has been really feeding into these recalls uh, in L.A., including the incipient, much earlier in the process, of recall effort against Councilmember Mike Bonin. Alex Villanueva went to the boardwalk in Venice, where there are a lot of encampments. As Venice is kind of the center of the backlash against uh, non-carceral homelessness policy in, in L.A. Uh, and Alex Villanueva said... He, he condemned the action of, quote, phony politicians and idiot activists who he said are enabling the crisis. And he said, for those that think they're going to make a lifestyle of being homeless and destroying communities, that's not going to happen. Here's a clue for all our elected officials. We are not going to build our way out of the homeless crisis, except jails. We, if, jails, yeah. we could, <laughs> we have to build. And those are more expensive, of course. But, but that is the implication, is that yes. we should not be trying to house people so much. We should be trying to put people in jail more. yes uh, and he's been sending deputies out to venice beach like there's this whole political effort around uh this rising backlash that we're seeing all over the there's city there's a question here about the beach situation because mm-hmm. jurisdictionally mm-hmm. there is a county part of yes. the land right there that yes. some people were wondering like well what businesses he have going there but there is Part of the land there is county land, right? Is that how it works? Yes. There's, I mean, there's a ton of jurisdictions out yeah. there because, like, once you get to certain parts of the, I think, I think even the state has like some probably influence there. There's too. some weird stuff with the bike path there too. Yeah. Like, it's not they they could say they had to keep it clear for some reason because it's not actually city, a no, city I, I route the, or something mm, like the that. The bike path is county at yeah. least yeah. In, outside of Santa Monica, right? Yeah. And so, yes, they do have a role there, but he is doing like he's he's going along the actual boardwalk area, which right, is city right, right. territory. He's not respecting these invisible boundaries at all. Uh, at the same time, 
he is being sued. His uh, department is being sued by the city of Compton for fraud. Alex Villanueva's uh, Compton says that they, uh, the sheriff's department was falsely reporting the time that deputies were spending patrolling the city, bilked them out of millions of dollars. And he also has his own reelection campaign. That's happening. He's up for reelection in yeah. 2022. He has an opponent who is a senior LASD official named Eli Vera, who is like kind of the picture, the traditional picture perfect like sheriff's candidate. I think what he's doing for him is politically smart. Oh, for sure. He's on the offense of 100% of the time. He has managed to skate by. That's his default, though. It's, well, I mean, it, it's worked before, yeah. and no recall happened against him, despite everything. Like, you like you look at this, like, the tonnage of his record. Yeah. And no recall. Yeah, I mean, I kind—I mean, it, it's it's like the you know, the 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 dynamic here that's really interesting is that you have um, recall supporters, wealthy homeowners, a lot of them probably at least nominally liberals or or Democrats, aligning with a figure who has mostly spent his time in office fighting with um, with the very blue. Uh, Democratic uh, Board of Supervisors here in California or here in Los Angeles. And I kind of wonder, you know, we do have more, I think, of this backlash anger against the Board of Supervisors growing. And you wonder, like, how much have things changed within the couple of years that Villanueva has been in office? That this is somebody that the Board of Supervisors was going to extraordinary measure or extraordinary measures to try and actually remove power from. Um, and potentially now is finding a new fan base in people who want to see unhoused people disappeared into the into the carceral system, into jails. Um, I don't know how this is going to play out, but it does seem like a smart move for Villanueva. It's, I mean, a rising tide of sewage lifts all bilge rats, <laughs> I guess. Um, he seems like somebody who stands to benefit in terms of popularity from the current political environment. We, we want to dig into this a little bit more in a second, uh, this, this kind of backlash, but let's talk about that Metro meeting that you had so much fun watching for I mean, six I and a half hours. Fun. I mean, I think three of the hours were dedicated to a, a Phil Washington goodbye <laughs> marathon embedded within the marathon meeting so you that's that was so they well produced wait till after hours to have that yeah or at least put the put the agenda drinks. items that matter to people at the beginning and maybe the end you could do the goodbye to phil perhaps um but it was i gotta say we keep having these conversations about where um where um Metro is really listening and responding in a way that has been um, pleasantly surprising in uh, for many of the asks, including um, reading from something that Scott had written for investing in place in the in the meeting, um, which was which was something that moved forward. So, um, so I just wasn't a- watching. <laughs> Full transparency. No, you weren't watching. Oh, no. you didn't even. I'll make you some clips and Thanks. post them for you. <laughs> I was like just making tons of video clips of what it was so entertaining, so entertaining. So okay, this was the budget meeting, the big budget meeting, eight billion dollar budget. 
Um, there were so many other things that we've talked about on the show that they talked about on the, at the meeting too. They talked about the Colorado alignment through Eagle Rock for the bus rapid transit. Um, they talked about the 710 freeway widening that we've been talking about multiple times. Um, so let's just quickly go through all the stuff. So the, the budget, um, this, it, it was a little, maybe I can have, you can explain it better, Scott, but the, but the big thing that we're looking at is like where the federal money that's coming is going and how Metro is still trying to say that it doesn't have enough money to do things like restore bus service to <laughs> the prior levels. Well, they, so what Metro has been saying and, and what they're really proud about is that in 2022, so that's the budget year that starts in a couple of weeks from now, uh, that they are going to go back to the pre-COVID level of service. They did cut service at the start of the pandemic. Um, by the time they make the planned restoration in September of this year, uh, it'll be have been about a year and a half that service will have been at these uh, really poor levels. And activists, myself included, throughout the course of the pandemic were saying to Metro, we need you to hold the line for people who are still dependent on, on bus service uh, and reinstate the, the service that you had before. Now Metro is coming out and saying, we have our biggest ever budget funded in part by over a billion dollars in federal stimulus money. And that is enabling us to go back to the pre-COVID baseline. Honestly, that is a huge disappointment. Yeah. Again, I mean, so we, we had asked them, like I said, to uh, stand pat for the, the riders who really needed their help during the course of the pandemic. They did not do that. Now saying we're going to go back to what was an insufficient level of service before the pandemic and that's a victory. It's actually a, a huge defeat for, again, the, the bus riders who are going to become mired in, like Matt was talking about at the top of the, at the, top of the episode, um, a, a, a worsening situation with traffic on the street, slower buses, uh, less reliability, and they have a lot of federal money. And it's going primarily towards uh, these capital expenditure projects that are if they ever help out the the average rider, it's going to be basically decades from now. Um, it, a lot of it is intended to bolster uh, the the so-called twenty eight by twenty eight projects that Mayor Garcetti introduced in advance of uh, the Olympics coming here in uh, in eight years. These are all um, these are all things that are not really practical in the current state of affairs, where the focus needs to be on a recovery that actually impacts the people who were most uh, negatively uh, most negatively impacted by the the pandemic over the course of the last year and a half. So um, honestly, for, for Metro, one of the biggest things that we wanted was to see that they would uh, continue not to collect fares on buses. And that happened, right? And that moment was remarkable. I mean, th this coalition... 50 plus organizations, including um, the Bus Riders Union, which has been asking for this for decades, I think. I mean, just this idea that we could have fare free travel, uh, particularly for people who are low income students. We've talked about this before, but to, to say for from now until this pilot goes in place, which they are going to create and start, and that will happen you know, later in this year through the beginning of next year. But 
we saw this moment where um, Holly Mitchell makes this movement and says, okay, well, I just want to make sure that if people aren't paying for buses now, that they don't start paying all of a sudden before we have this in place. Mike Bonin seconded it. And that is happening. So if you've been riding buses for free this whole time, fare, fare free travel, it's not necessarily for free. It does cost someone money. I was, <laughs> I was uh, corrected on that. Um, but it's fare free because people need to recover from COVID, get back on buses. You're, you can have your hot, bus summer now and you can take uh, the buses uh, uh, for free until they get this in place yes summer. well yeah you can cool down on the hot the hot buses <laughs> but this is i thought this was just like an ask that was a big ask that really did center the needs of riders at this moment and we got it and scott should be commended all those groups should be commended it was a really big deal and Bill Washington is out and we have a new director, Stephanie Wiggins, who will be starting, I think, at the next board meeting. It seemed they seemed to make it seem like this was it for him. Yep. I think they said he was leaving tomorrow. <laughs> the day <laughs> after mean, the meeting, he was like, It would be I'm a gone. really anticlimactic to have a three hour going away party and then the person <laughs> then shows up at the next gone. meeting. So this, I mean, just to kind of head out on this note, plus they approved the Colorado alignment. They're not necessarily saying that it would be the beautiful boulevard. Um uh, bus only lanes. Uh, bus only lanes, but that's it moved forward. And it seemed like the 710 is dead it, to me. I don't know. It, it wasn't like an official, official. The uh, 710 expansion and the, the the alignment of the the, color, the 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 BRT on Colorado on the highway yeah, that, that also it, died. Right, right, yeah. So they, they did approve that it will definitely be on Colorado. And then mm-hmm. it seemed like the 710 just, it just didn't seem like there was a path forward. They Most people were just saying, well, what do you do now after the federal government and Caltrans have both said, we're not doing this. So why would we explore it further? Oh, uh, I mean, the, the last thing that I thought was really noteworthy was uh, Director Mike Bonin saying that he wanted to make sure that Metro planning in in future budgets was uh, was assessing the quality of the service that that Metro Again, buses Scott, were, were providing. Scott. He quoted Scott. <laughs> it was so exciting. I mean, so the 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 thing that I wrote about was th- that Metro bus speeds have fallen significantly since the start of the year. We or since the start of the century. We talked about it a little bit last week. Um, and so Metro's board picked up on that, um, which I'm, of course, very grateful for. They have asked Metro to tie any analysis that they do of the amount of bus hours they're putting out on city streets to how far are those buses going in that time? What is What does an hour of bus service actually mean? So um, we'll have to see how that gets interpreted by Metro staff. They have a history of trying to be evasive when it comes to these sorts of uh, direct sort of orders to to improve bus service, but we'll we'll see. A good time. Always watch the Metro Board meetings, even if they're six and a half hours. You'll always have some entertainment. I, I will not. <laughs> <laughs> I will not do that. Uh, uh, let's go to field reporter Matt Tinoco uh, from Echo Park Lakes <laughs> reopening this week. Oh, Matt, yeah. is that is LA Podcast Reports? I yes. remember hearing that at some point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean the. Among Echo Park hyperlocal news this week is that the park is now open, sort of. Is it? Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Uh, so Wednesday at 3 p.m. of the week before, when you're listening to this, was the official reopening of Echo Park Lake. There was, you know, you had the show, the council member O'Farrell showed up. He wanted to make sure that there was a gracious presentation. He himself was booed out of the lake. He was confronted by a number of local activists and he vacated the lake and then... I showed up there in the evening. I just wanted to take a second to kind of describe for 
Well, actually, has anybody in this room gone to the lake since it's reopened? I've been around it. I haven't actually gone. And I need to go to it. Never going again. I'm going, but I, I haven't done it yet. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of entrances to the park. The, the exterior fence, the sort of chain link uh, fence that was erected in the dead of night a couple of months ago, remains there. The perimeter fence. You have a few entrances. Uh, but it's kind of strange. At least one you can see through the perimeter fence now in a way you couldn't yes. before, right? So the little the little green, uh, like the green blinder that was mm-hmm. regularly tagged up and then untagged, I guess, by the you know whoever scrubs tagging for. I'm curious about that line item among yeah, everything. Yeah, how much maintenance to keep your fence? Oh God, go on. But um, your big beautiful fence, big, tremendous beautiful wall, fence. tremendous wall. But. Um, <laughs> There's a couple of entrances and you have to go, there's, it's, there's only, I think there's three or four of them. I counted three when I was there. I saw other people say that there were four. They're all, they're heavily guarded by like either LAPD or park rangers. And, and then you kind of, yeah, it's like you have to, at least when I was there on, I went on Wednesday evening after it had gotten dark because I was kind of curious to see if anybody was going to try and stay in the park. So the way it works now is the park's official close time is 1030 PM, which was consistent with the way the rules were written before, but now there's a fence and a whole lot of men with guns who will enforce that. Uh, So the park closes officially at 10.30 p.m. As you enter the park and walk around, I mean, it was such a strange thing, like having spent a fair amount of time at Echo Park Lake in the before, before this all happened throughout the pandemic, it's it's weird to walk around and see everything that was there have, it's just totally disappeared. It's a very sort of haunting area to walk around because you're like, there were like two or 300 people here before living here. And as long as I've been to that park, even before the pandemic, like there were always people living there. Yeah. It's strange to see it totally without anybody actually there because that's been such a consistent, like since the park reopened a number of years ago after it had been re, I guess like overhauled and, and redeveloped then. Uh, there's still plenty of rats, I must say, that are are very highly visible. There's a lot of like that was something that I saw uh, screwing around all over the park. Every, I've seen them everywhere in the city lately. I feel yeah. like it's because there's there, that that's a problem in a lot of cities. I think after the pandemic, with the way that food systems have been interrupted for the rats. But the the thing that really got me distinct because you you can go around the park into other areas away from the away from the gates. There's mostly it's still it's like. People just kind of, I mean, there were a bunch of people drinking in the park and I was just like, who's allowed to drink in this park? Who mm-hmm. isn't allowed to drink in the park? Um, but then the thing that really got me was on the evening that I was there and it's been consistently shown since um, like other people just on Twitter taking videos is that there's a lot of like park ranger and police vehicles driving around on the pathway in the park. Mm-hmm. So you get this situation where the- Not just, I mean, some little- Police carts or whatever, park ranger carts, well, but also full yeah. on cars, a, a yeah. full and of, bike cops. Yeah, so you have bike cops. You and have will be horses soon, right? I I don't know that, but I I mean it would. They be were consistent. there for the opening. Yeah. There were a lot of horses at the opening. But like the thing that I saw basically that cemented my this is to me at least in my view a very very frightening view of it seems like maybe the path we're marching down is you have it was the rangers in a in a like a little like off highway vehicle sort of like Kubota I think they're called. They're going around the lake. They're light. It's nighttime. The lights are flashing on. Like it's a very, it's almost like strobe lights, which is somewhat, you know, bothersome. But everybody walking on the path has to yield to the, to the ranger car or the police car or the ranger SUV. And 
so it's like it was a family with a stroller. They're come, they're they're walking along. The the ranger truck comes up behind them. They have to get off the sidewalk, pause, and let like the ranger. Like at the airport when you're trying to walk down, and there's always the carts that are zooming behind you, like yeah. At you. <laughs> it's it no, but very much it is like that. But it's but it's a situation where it's like okay, so if we're trying to create a space where you're enjoying the park, it's kind of difficult to enjoy the park when there's an ubiquitous police presence everywhere in the park. You're, I mean, I would I would just say. Based on what you're describing, your enjoyment of the park is no longer the, the, no, the primary no, concern. It was, it was so. It, I mean, it made this it, is a militarized public space. Yeah, is what it sounds like. Once, once the once the park was shut down, it's consistent. It's the same sort. If you were around the the park in the lake when it was shut down, it's the same sort of like enormous. It's fully state controlled. There's no room for dissent unless it's like, I guess, authorized dissent, which is like, Mm -hmm. if you're of a certain, I guess, socioeconomic status, it's fine to, you know, drink your white claws in the park. But like, if you're, you know, not above Mm -hmm. that threshold, well, we're going to make sure you can't do that and exit you. Like I didn't, it was, it was just, it was for me and and whatever with my orientation and just like my knowledge of like how we're going to deal with public space with homelessness looking forward. It's like, you're not like the city is, are you really going to try and do this for every single park in the city of Los Angeles? I don't know. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to try and advocate for that, but that's not a sustainable thing, especially because all the park rangers were there chatting about how much overtime they're getting paid to stand there right now, right Mm -hmm. then at the gate. They were discussing like, oh, well, it's at this pay grade, but then after 35 minutes at that pay grade, it goes to this pay grade, which is like X number more. And it's just like, I don't know. I mean, what's the, are, are you going to do this at every park in the city? No, definitely not. Um, but for what the city views as premier, highly visible tourist destinations, I think that we could see this type of approach a lot more. Um, the Pershing Square Renew, if that ever happened, I would not be surprised if we saw a similar sit, uh, setup put in place. And it's ironic because you know I, I've been off Twitter for like a, a week or two. Um, but several weeks ago, I said on there that I felt like what we were going to see happen at Echo Park Lake was going to be exactly what happened at Pershing Square over the course of uh, years, if not decades, in the second half of the 20th century, where it transformed from being an urban space that people could easily access and walk through, being um, you know Los Angeles's Central Park, which it was at one time called. Uh, to being a very forbidding place uh, where there are walls, there are um, a select number of entrances, the space is extremely programmed, making most of it inaccessible, um, probably about 100 or so days out of the year, um, and that we were going to basically do this for the same reasons that we did it in, in the 70s through 90s, which was people just want to be able to force out unhoused people and they are willing to sacrifice, at least in Los Angeles, they are willing to sacrifice the publicness of these spaces in order to um, make large parts of the population unsafe or unwelcome there. And I mean, your note about the programming of space was, I mean, as I walked in there, I know the like Disneyland analogy gets overused as well as like the Handmaid's Tale analogy, but that was kind of, those were the two things that I thought about. Like right when I walked into the park, seeing the the guards and the bright lights standing around, it's very clear where you can and cannot go the bathrooms are monitored. There's people standing around there. It reminded me very much of like a, it, I mean, I felt like right when I walked in, I was like, okay, well, this actually quite reminds me of like Disneyland and mm-hmm. like the very clear delineation between where I, a 
I guess, customer of the city of Los Angeles because I'm going to spend my I'm, I'm going to spend my money in the surrounding neighborhood. Uh, am I allowed to go within this space and where I'm not allowed to go? And also, I'm one of the ones who can like pass in mm-hmm. through here and move around, whereas that's not offered to everybody. You know, it's funny too that to hear you mention the strobe lights because based on Michael Moore and uh, and Mitchell Farrell's comments, I thought that the presence of strobe lights set off a reflex to just start swinging police batons oh. among <laughs> members of the LAPD. And the the vendors were not being let in. Did you see? Uh, there was there were no vendors. I'm not there sure. There are no vending signs, which well, Doug Smith from Public there. Council is pointing out is is not actually those signs legal. were there, yeah. but and there are rules about vending in parks, mm. but they shouldn't be stopping the vendors from walking in, which is what I saw. Like vendors were set up on the street, like mm. on the sidewalk, which remains ADA inaccessible. By the way, the all the sidewalks around you still cannot pass on. And there's no real easy way to get in or out if you are try to enter the park on one, well, the whole like Western flank, you have to walk all the way around. So it, I can't see how any of this can be kept up because it's limiting access. Not like the city cares about that, but it seems like a pretty good case from either, you know, Doug Smith and, and um, public council or an ADA violation to take this down. I'm also kind of curious about like, is it an adverse environmental impact? Because you have, I mean, in theory, you have wildlife in the park and like, I mean, right. don't we have laws about this? Did they fence just, off like the a, entire a, thing is fenced a off. nest from like the, do they look and go to every single geese and family and, and make <laughs> sure they can have, act- I'm serious. Which is no, what I know. Which yeah, is- and not just in theory, but like that was a big part of the, when they were kicking out all of the unhoused people who were living there, they were the, the advocates for the eviction we're saying this is detrimental to the yes. environmental uh, habitat, to the animal ha- habitats that exist here, and to the to the ecosystem of uh, of the lake area. So it seems kind of interesting that they ADA would not for Canadian geese. What we need, I mean, seriously. I actually saw uh, one. I saw somebody put a chicken in the park, and then I saw another goose. It was learned behavior where they were running along the edge of the fence, the the birds mm. trying to solicit food from people on the other side. That was behavior that had been learned in the past month, presumably because there's less food available in the park. So they've been hungry and trying to get it from people walking along the outside. I think, I mean, the, the one thing that I want to call out too is that I think in the coverage of the reopening, there is a really, um, you know, like basically perfidious narrative that is taking hold that is even in the LA Times where it's like people are returning to the lake you know people feel like they can uh, reclaim the space of of the park and and whatever um, that without going to the lengths of saying that anyone should feel good about the status quo honestly anywhere in the city of Los Angeles from prior to the lake closure the one thing I would say is Throughout the pandemic, throughout the time that this camp existed at Echo Park Lake, people were there. Lots of people were there every day, not just unhoused people, people from the surrounding neighborhood. Every time I went to Echo Park Lake, it was packed with people who were housed. Um, And so seeing like the narrative be like, oh, families are returning to the lake. Families were there all the time. And um, and I just think that the only period of time at which people were not visiting Echo Park Lake was when it was shut down by Recreation and Parks and Mitchell Farrell's office. That's I mean, I want to underscore, like we talk about the experience of the park as being less pleasant now as uh, being militarized and all these things. But like the this 
uh, new version of the park not being an improvement. That, that's not a universally held opinion, obviously. You yourself have said that Mitch O'Farrell might be the most popular, uh, most beloved politician in L.A. right now because of this, because of what he did at Echo Park Lake. I just don't want that narrative to be like, uh, yeah, uncontested. Yeah, no, absolutely. And at the same time, like... Uh, a couple blocks away, there are people that used to live on the actual lake that mm-hmm. are now set up at Sunset and Logan. They have a, a huge footprint because they, they there were issues with this at Echo Park Lake, too. I actually don't think their setup was great there either, but they were like hoarding issues. They have stuff all over the place. Yep. It's just moved two blocks away. And like this is the like this is the result of what happened at Echo Park Lake. Mm-hmm. But him getting to focus on the lake itself is to show something that is clean and default like you said it's like disney-fied and like is is this kind of thing that he can hold up as this great success for so many people that wanted him to do this and were exhorting him to do it for so long when really he's just shifted a lot of the the presence of homelessness into the immediately surrounding area but that never shows up on the news cameras he gets to celebrate this as literally i mean it's you, you said two blocks away it's on the freeway mm-hmm. uh, as you as you're coming in there's so many people living there. there's so many people living under the alvarado underpass i mean the the thing that we cannot forget is that this has undoubtedly made people's lives worse and we won't even know the repercussions of this for a while because as we've talked about before like a lot project room is going to end soon a lot of these days were only temporary and so the fallout of this is going to really start to be revealed over the next month i feel like and at the same time there are other people getting put into housing quietly with no cops in all parts of the city that is working. You know, there is there is like a limited amount of success too. And we can't forget that like, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't require this type of press, you know, the, the this type of a streets of shame level of coverage to to prove that like mission accomplished and we've cleared up this park and we've done all these things. Yes, other parks are getting fenced off. You know, Grand Park has, remains fenced off. You better believe I'm going to be knocking that down on June 15th when I try to get to that splash pad. <laughs> but like there are people being housed well you know, appropriately and in, in the right way. And we can't forget that it doesn't require this type of militaristic, you know, response. This is a good segue into a new segment that we're trying. Historically, we have not really looked at other cities outside of LA and the United States had no interest, nothing interesting that we know was going on there. But now we are going to take a look at some other places. We know we have listeners in other parts of the country who we want to hear from about this to look at trends that are uh, maybe popping up in other parts of the U.S. and things that could make their way to L.A. Uh, in the next month, in the next year, uh, tides uh, that are that are approaching our city from elsewhere in the U.S. for a new segment called "It Could Happen to You." I thought you were going to use the fairy tales could come true. I like that too. We'll try different things. Scott sent me that one. I like, I certainly (laughs) like that for this one. Uh, We want to talk about Austin, Austin, Texas, where I grew up. I lived there for five years uh, when I was a kid. Uh, Voters in Austin last month voted to reinstate a ban on camping in public space, basically for 
huge sections of the city uh, a ban on being able to camp on the sidewalk and like it, in, in most of the city where encampments currently exist. It was called Proposition B. It hit the ballot through an action committee called Save Austin Now, uh, and it passed 57 to 43. It, 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 that was, it, it passed significantly. Yeah. Uh, and, and now camping, like sitting in the public right-of-way, panhandling, those are all punishable with a misdemeanor and a $500 fine. They're trying to do this at the state level, too, through the Texas legislature. And I want to talk about the differences between L.A. and Austin, some of the similarities, and what would I want, like actual like guesses from all of you, at what would happen here if this measure were to be on the ballot this coming Tuesday, let's say. Uh, so Austin has about 3,000 people experiencing homelessness in the city. 70% of them are unsheltered, though uh, about 2,200 uh, people are unsheltered there. We have 42,000 people who are homeless in Los Angeles, about 70 to 75%, about the same proportion who are, mm -hmm. who are unsheltered. City of L.A., is only four times as big as the city of Austin and its population. And our population of uh, people who are homeless is 14 times larger. There are a million people in Austin? It's a big city. Wow. Yes, it's one of the 10 biggest cities in the U.S., I think. Uh, this is San Francisco. The San Francisco, <laughs> by the way, is one of the cities we will not be talking about in, ever. Uh, in, in this segment ever. Never. Uh, the mayor of Austin, Steve Adler very strongly opposed uh this ballot measure i uh, was tweeting about it all the time vote no on proposition b again the interest of getting people into shelter and like moving people out of homelessness in a less criminal way without fines and arrests and misdemeanors and all that uh i'm not sure that it would go that way in los angeles i want to hear your predictions for that as well uh and in terms of Austin's uh, political that people are, oh, it's Texas or whatever. Biden beat Trump by 45 points in Travis County where Austin is. That's the exact same margin uh, that uh, he won by in L.A. County. And in the same way, a city of L.A. is slightly bluer in its voting record than the county of L.A. is. That's also true for Austin within mm -hmm. Travis County. These are very, very mm -hmm. politically similar places where well, they, most people from LA moved to Austin. Yes. They're all, they have all moved there in the last two or three years. Uh, so let's start. What do you think? What do you think would be the margin, the exact margin of that vote now in Los Angeles? And what would the response be from our political leaders? Well, one thing to, to, to note that I think it is important if you're looking at parallels of what this would look like for us, it's, it's not necessarily the whole city. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a part of like the central business district. And then you have to remember in Austin, different, a little bit different from us is the University of Texas is a big part of their downtown um, and would be part of that as well. And I think that's why you also saw a lot. The state capital is in Austin. It's very funny too. So you have like this horrible governor who is like now responsible for probably the deaths of 700 people during a, a grid collapse during the February ice storms. So he is in Austin, right? So you have to think about this weird um, dichotomy of like, right. they're around, these people are around us. I don't want mm -hmm. this around my state government and my, you know, <laughs> University of Texas, <laughs> yeah. you know, jewel of the uh, you know, education system. So it, it is only like, it, it, it's, it's saying maybe if you were like the downtown 
core and a little bit bigger. Um, but that's where homelessness and, is. Right, in of Austin. course. I'm, I'm just saying, just to envision it. I'm just yes. saying to think of it for here. Like it wouldn't necessarily be the whole city, but it would be like the most, the places where the most people are. So one of the concerns from some of the people that I talked to when I had reported some other stories was that it really just means people will be moving, you know, moving yeah. from one place to another. Right. But the surrounding, like the outer rings of the city of Austin are super suburbanized. It's yeah. not like they're going to move into like those those suburban neighborhoods right. and be allowed to stay there. And, and, and an amazing thing, too, if you're talking about just the pure numbers, the um, city of Austin actually was one of the places that did take money from their police budget and put it towards... Homeless Housing has bought, I think they've bought like four or five hotels now. Mm -hmm. Plus they also have put in money to this incredible village that is like a tiny home village, which is actually like a real community that they've mm -hmm. uh, put on kind of on the edge of the city. Um, that's been, you know, people all over talk about using it as a model in their cities. So they they actually have done, if you look at like the percentage, I don't know how many hotels we would have to buy to, to match that, but they've made a dent in actually providing the housing within the last year. So that's mm -hmm. also very encouraging. It would be d a little bit different for us to vote on this without a, a more accelerated effort for saying we actually had places for people to go, which I guess we have that now. Would that be part of the messaging? I'm just being the hypothetical ballot measure, how it's written. But um, what would you say if people, if we passed this and there was actually nowhere to go is the question, or would that be part of that legislation well, here in the city? Jail, right? I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the, yeah. the premise is that it, the, the, there's always somewhere to go. Uh, what, what is the line from a Christmas Carol? Are the, are the poor houses full or whatever? <laughs> are there no workhouses? Are there no workhouses? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically the, the premise. I'm to, to your question is, I think that we would see something very similar. If, if this were a vote on, Tuesday, if we were voting on this tomorrow, June 1st, um, I think public sentiment in Los Angeles right now is such that a measure like this could pass. And um, that is really a stark contrast to where we were a couple of years ago when we passed measures H and, and HHH uh, at the, the city and county level here. It's I'm not. I'm not sure what exactly to attribute it to because I think a lot of the leaders that were um, were around H and HHH would still steadfastly oppose something like this, something like what was proposed in in Austin. I think a lot of them would. I don't think that Garcetti, for example, would support something like this. Um, I mean, he might give the reason that it's potentially out of line with. Um, with Ninth Circuit rulings or or other settlements that the the city has directly been a party to, um, I certainly don't think, for example, Council Member Mark Ridley Thomas, who was instrumental in uh, in H, while he was a member of the County Board of Supervisors, would support something like this. And there are a number of other council members who wouldn't. Then you have those who I think certainly would. You have Mitch O'Farrell. You have Joe Buscaino. You have. Uh, conceivably Council President Nuri Martinez, who might look to support something like this that was a more uh, aggressively recriminative approach to um, homelessness in the city. And I think more to the point, popular sentiment is just such that even without a major change in the, the sentiments of our political leaders, um, that that the, the voters would probably go for something like this. And I actually think that the politicians, as is frequently the case, are responding to rather than leading public sentiment on this issue. 
It's a, it's a hard, I mean, in California, even I encourage listeners to find out, to seek out an article that Naomi Klein published a couple of weeks ago about what's happened in Chico um, after the campfire. So in Butte County, the article details basically that one in four people who are experiencing homelessness in Butte County, they've done their research, they've done their surveys. One in four people can attribute the cause of their homelessness directly to the devastating campfire from a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago. The article basically lays out the course that says that once, right after the campfire happened, Chico what, uh, was attempt. Their, their public line was, "We're going to be very compassionate to these people. Any whom, any whom could be us. Any of us could, in theory, lose our house yep. in a in a fire or something." Last November, after the pandemic, after the pandemic, and after a several months of a buildup, basically saying, "Well, we want to keep Chico safe. We want to. We 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 need our public space to be safe." The city council balance swung from a group of people who was saying, no, we're not going to we're not going to send the police after and we're not going to clear the camps. We're not going to enforce our anti-camping laws to a new city council that is extremely eager to say we are absolutely going to enforce our anti-camping laws. And that's just the way it's going to be, I think. And like that is a very appealing for for voter for like a voter who's not necessarily up to the minute on like what's happening with Project Room Key or Project Home Key or anything like I don't know. It worries me because like the messaging is not there. Like the, the measure H messaging, the stuff that passed the stuff passed like the big LA County, like ballot, ballot propositions a couple of years ago, like that has kind of disappeared. The worry for electeds and, and everybody involved with homelessness in Los Angeles County has always been what's going to happen when measure H runs out. It's not a permanent thing. It's a 10 year quarter cent sales tax. It has an expiration date that by now is closer than when the ballot was passed a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And everybody has consistently been worried. We don't, I mean, like electeds have said this to me. People in Los have said this to me. People who worked on Measure H have said this to me. They said, and this was a couple of years ago, we don't think Measure H would pass today uh, no, no. if it, as it did a couple of years ago. And it that could means, not get renewed, frankly. No, and that's a very real situation oh, where wow. then it's yeah, like what, yeah, that. like Measure H raises like three or four hundred million dollars a year, or it's supposed to raise three or four hundred million dollars a year, and like that could evaporate in I think it'd be twenty sixteen or twenty twenty six or twenty twenty seven, um, and like I don't know what that means for our local service system. Obviously, there's been a, an immediate influx of federal money, but like I don't that's a that's a giant question mark that everybody's looking around. So regardless of whether or not this ballot proposition, like a are we going to enforce camping ordinances in city of Los Angeles like was on the ballot next year or this year or whenever tomorrow? Like the issue of Measure H needing to be renewed is a very like that is a real thing that's coming. And like it is a current unknown how that would shake out, because obviously, like everybody acknowledged that homelessness and unsheltered, uh, unsheltered homelessness specifically in the right of way was a massive issue a few years ago. Everybody sees it like, well, everybody were like when I say everybody, I mean like the people who like pushed for measuration, Triple H. It's like we were conscious that people were worried about this before, but now we have to account for, well, then the voters will say, well, we already voted on this. Did Why are we doing it again? If the last time didn't work, maybe we have to try something different. Where that something different, the massive worry I personally have is, is the something different just massive police enforcement of anti-camping and sort of conduct loss? Like, I don't know. Like, this is something that we need to see uh, shake out from the Ninth Circuit with the the Martin v. Boise. Like, will the LA Alliance case undo the Martin v. Boise thing? That's a giant question mark that will probably be resolved before Measure Rage expires, but like, probably not that long after. Um, which like, it's just, I don't know. There's lots of, lots of stuff in play. And like, 
I feel like this is the moment where it's like those of us who like it's empirically obvious that enforcement against somebody who is experiencing homelessness does not work. That is a truth. That is a material truth that can be pointed to over and over again. And using police enforcement is politically expedient because like some like voters like it, but like it does not do anything and it costs a ton of money. But- yeah. I mean, I think the, what we're, what we're seeing is the breakdown of what was a very, very, very temporary um, consensus on yeah. it not working to uh, use the the penal system to correct on uh, the the state of unhoused living or to correct homelessness. Um, that consensus is what you were just talking about, Matt, when when you were saying that arresting people who are homeless doesn't work. That is only true so long as people have a joint understanding of of what it means for there to be a solution to yeah. homelessness or what it means for a solution to work. And what is it? And what's different? Like you talk about, like there there is a successful branding of like let's try something different. But what they are actually proposing is not different. No, it's, it's the least different approach that you could possibly divine. It's the thing that we have been doing exclusively forever. Uh, but that, but that really, really works. So they can say like, we we've got to try something new when it's actually the oldest approach. This is actually the 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 fundamental principle behind the Gascon recall too, mm-hmm. right? We see this. Um, okay, well, we tried something new for four months. This is kind of yeah. The premise <laughs> right. of a recall, uh, just a few months into right. a, an and now we need to this. This is the the Gascon model doesn't work. We need to try something new, mm-hmm. i.e., the thing that we did uh, in, in an unbroken chain for several decades prior to this four month period. Do you know what I could see though is a ballot measure for here that's something about dismantling Lhasa because that's been kind of like on both sides of the conversation and that would, re- would that require something like a ballot, a ballot measure, measure, a county uh, ballot measure or, or there would Lhasa? be a push to like restructure how we do things. I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there. But That is such a good question that I, I feel like we need to look into. I don't think it I would. Think re- it was created by a ballot I think measure. it was created by a it was lawsuit. A, it was a, yeah, it was a, basically Lhasa was the result of a legal settlement stemming from litigation that started in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this it was, it was, Lhasa was the, Lhasa, Lhasa and the, the joint powers agreement between the city and county of Los Angeles was basically, okay, well, this is how we're going to divide responsibility. Yeah. Right. In that neither party takes responsibility right. and they hand it over to a third party social services agency that until only a couple of years ago with Measure H was relatively small and right. not a big player yeah. in homeless services and in Los Angeles. what we see now is people working outside of that system, both you know, both systems with like with Mitchell Farrell contracting with Urban Alchemy, yeah. which is not, it doesn't have anything to do with really, you know, what Lhasa is doing. And then also hiring like private security firms to help, you know, incriminate people for whatever reason. You know, you we have these like, you know, phantom <laughs> outreach and, and we don't, we don't have the same level of accountability mm-hmm. for what is happening here. So are we just going to see whatever, if we criminalize, homelessness or not, or sleeping on sidewalks or whatever, will you still have these same kind of, um, from the vigilantes of a citizen yeah. to urban alchemy type groups um, that just are operating well, 
you know, in their own way. The the thing about the the Austin vote and and why I do think that's something that that could happen here in some in some form is that I I, I see and I, I've talked to each of you about this that that we have a pretty what seems to me a pretty dangerous new political mood in the post Trump several months that we we've had so far. Uh, and and namely, when we talk about like having an agreement on what it means for solutions to homelessness to work, there are a lot more people, or at least uh, more vocal contingent politically now than there were a year ago, saying a solution to homelessness is I don't see homeless people, mm-hmm. and so in that in that cast, uh, then yes arresting people um, is a solution to homelessness because then you don't see them temporarily. Of course, we know that it doesn't uh, it doesn't actually help the people who are unhoused and it doesn't solve the underlying problems. There are a lot more people who are saying, I don't actually care about the underlying problems. Stop telling me that I should. Um, and I think that it's part of this uh, this this mood in politics, which is people being, tired of, of being asked to be compassionate. And I, I feel like that's related to uh, Trump being out of office because there was a major push um, internally in, in politics. It got a lot of people interested in local activism while Trump was in office. This notion that here's somebody who is, um, you know, the, 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 the phrase, the cruelty is the point, right? Like here's somebody who is openly cruel and doing things in your name politically, uh, and the onus is on you. If you want to, if you want people to not think that you are a cruel person, then the onus is on you to demonstrate compassion. I think we've and every of, elected official would use would call the other candidate Trump like yeah. in, in, in in local politics. That's yeah. what happened for four years. And 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 that is sort of I think evaporating. We also have we're also at the tail end of this pandemic. I mean, the, the, the tail end for some, right? Like I, I was just reading a story in the New York times today. That's about, um, two teenagers in New York city who were orphaned, uh, by COVID and have had to learn how to take care of themselves. Uh, Uh, incredible story. And, um, and a really stark reminder of the fact that for a lot of people, the pandemic is not ever going to end. It has dramatically changed the quality of their life going forward. But I think for others, uh, for many others, there is a sense of, I want to return to normalcy for me so badly that, um, that what matters most is that I think get to, I get to think about myself again. Um, and that's a really dangerous thing politically. And I do think that that, that contributes to the likelihood of us seeing something that is just purely selfish and just purely not going to work with a real apathy about what the consequences may be because we just should be able to just uh, let loose and think about ourselves only. Take us home. That's our show today. Uh, so we we just completed episode 176, if you can believe it. Uh, thank you, of course, to our Sepulveda pass holders. They are the ones who keep us independent. You can join the Sepulveda pass if you want. $5 a month, clicking on the support us link on the LAPod.com. We do additional content for our Sepulveda pass holders, including, as I mentioned, the TMZ episode, Cradle to the Grave, which is coming out shortly. 
Special thanks, of course, to producer Brian Holmes and our editor, Matt Tinoco. In progress. Editor in, pro- editor in progress, you Matt Tinoco. You can edit that to be whatever you want it to be. And, of course, thanks to everybody who is listening. We'll be back with another episode next week. Bye. Bye.